The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. God, we thank you. We thank you for a space where we can pause, where we can be silent, where we can sit with people that we love, and we can bask in the truth of our Creator who knows us and loves us still. And we pray today, God, that the the calling that you have for us as a church, the message that you have for us as individuals and families, would be a word of hope and encouragement today. God, I pray for brothers and sisters that are struggling. For many of us as we're raising kids, some that aren't getting a lot of sleep. For some of us that have adult kids and we don't know how to help them anymore. Lord, for some of us in places where um, we want to have control and we are struggling to let go and to let you have control. And to know, God, that you have a plan for us. Lord, help us to hear your voice today. We pray this in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Ecclesia. I have uh, a unique word and reminder for you today. If you were here at the beginning of the service, I talked to you a little bit about what we believe you're supposed to do when something really good happens. And uh, I was reminded of it yesterday uh, when something broke out spontaneously in the midst of Houston traffic. So uh, what do you usually do in Houston traffic? You're angry and upset. Uh, but yesterday, I, was, uh, I bought my wife a new car recently, and that has made, I, and now I drive it a lot because it's the best car we have. It's really fun. It has a top that goes down. It's a Volkswagen. And uh, so I'm sunburned today because I'm driving her car too much. And yesterday, uh, I was driving with two of my kids, and uh, in the midst of Houston traffic, um, this is what they uh, began to do. This is Christian. Uh, my 11-year-old, and as you can see from his dance moves, uh, we are in traffic outside of Minute Maid Park, and, um, and he wasn't the only one dancing. There were grown people dancing in the streets, because I don't know if you noticed, but the Astros are really close to sweeping the Indians. And, uh, and it was this reminder of like, we're just, just in our bodies, we're just made when something great happens to want to express it. Whether you're a good dancer or a bad dancer, Christian's pretty good. And what we learned was as he would dance, cars would pull up next to us and they would dance. And it was contagious and everybody was excited. And that's what we're going to do on October 19th. And today I'm going to tell you why we're going to do that. So on October 19th, we got a slide that'll tell you about it. I want you to put it in your calendar. We're going to have a debt-free dance party. And you wonder, why would a church do that? And that's my job today uh, is to tell you. But before we do that, I realize that when you have a dance, it unearths all kinds of memories. And I do have, um, I have a theory that a large part, I'm going to guesstimate at 75% of your early adolescent self-image is based on whether or not your first couple of dances were a good experience or a bad experience. So I'm curious, how many of you look back and you go, first couple of school dances, great experience. How many people had a great experience at your first couple? How many people had a really bad experience in your first couple of? 
And am I right generally about your early self-image? Am I somewhere close that it was really hard uh, to get past some of those bad, some, that like social microcosm, like it, it puts a microscope on all the things you feel about yourself and it becomes amplified in a way uh, that's really hard for us to fathom and understand. You have time for me to tell you a really funny story about my first school dance? My dad had, um, he went to Houston Baptist University and had mostly, mostly a, um, he had mostly like really great friends from HBU that like went on to be pastors and very respectable people in the world. Um, but when I was in eighth grade, he had one of his college buddies, one of his fraternity brothers, just move in with us. And um, if any of you uh, as husbands go to your wife and say, one of my fraternity brothers doesn't have a place to live and I'd like him to live with us, Talk to your pastor first before you make that recommendation. I'm just asking you uh, as a courtesy for the spiritual care of your family. And, uh, and this guy, you thought, dad says, hey, this guy, my buddy, he's gonna come live with us because he doesn't have a place to live. And then he gets to our house and he pulls up, and we're thinking, this is a homeless guy. He pulls up in a Porsche 911 convertible. And I'm like, dad, he can get a place to stay. Like he, <laughs> but he was in this kind of weird, um, you know, they used to call it the gray market where they would import um, cars from Germany and you would have to do some exhaust stuff on it. You could make some money. And he would go through these rounds where he'd make a lot of money, lose a lot of money. And he had a car he was trying to get modified and sold. And so in the process of this really unique individual coming to live with us, um, one day uh, my dad's gone and I'm left with his fraternity brother, which is really great uh, childcare situation, by the way. And, uh, and in eighth grade, he said, do you know how to drive a standard? And I said, yeah. <laughs> kind of, right? I'd driven a Volkswagen, right? I'm in eighth grade. And, uh, and he let me drive his Porsche 911. And I did pretty good. It's got a racing clutch. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. It's, they're not easy to drive, but I did pretty good. And at the end of it, he said, you got a school dance coming up, don't you? And I said, yeah. He said, you know, you'd live in the same neighborhood as your school. You could drive the Porsche 911 <laughs> to the dance if you'd like, right? And I'm like, I can? He's like, yeah, you can. So you know what I did? I started telling all my friends, I'm driving a Porsche 911 to the school dance. Now you can imagine, this guy's an adult, I'm not. Um, how, how do you think my dad's gonna respond to this great idea, right? How do you think the uh, parents of my date are gonna respond to the idea that an eighth grader's gonna pull up in a Porsche 911? <laughs> Ultimately, my dad was the ultimate bad guy, right? He was the killjoy. He was like, well, I could have driven a Porsche 911, but my dad won't let me, right? So he's got really great friends. All of that sparked what we believe to be in eighth grade still the best idea uh, because we were in such disappointment that I would no longer be driving the Porsche to the eighth grade dance, um, that we, we had a fundraiser with the football team and they announced that the person that sold the most goofy candy, random stuff that you were supposed to sell would get 500 bucks. And five of my buddies turned together and we said, between all of us, if we put it all under Chris's name, um, then even if he doesn't have the 911, we can rent a limo. And sure enough, we sold enough stuff that we had 500 bucks. And our first dance, uh, we didn't have the 911, but we showed up together in a limo and we thought we owned the school. And, um, and from that day forward, I had a confidence that was not my own. 
uh, only based upon the, uh, although I did get a massive zit on my nose uh, on that particular day. Anybody else have a testimony about a massive zit on your nose in the midst of it, right? This is part of what, part of what you do. And the awkwardness for me, right? I grew up in a Baptist church that couldn't quite figure out how they felt about dancing. Um, in fact, they really didn't like dancing and yet somehow you managed to find a way to, uh, and they'd make distinctions like, well, that's not dancing, that's choreography, right? That's uh, <laughs> like, you'd, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> that's not dancing, that's swaying, that's praising Jesus with your body. Um, so for us, we're just gonna have flat out dancing. So to set up the story that I'm gonna read to you in scripture, uh, I wanna give you a visual image that might uh, help. So I'm curious, I got three brief pieces of music I want you to hear. Uh, I'm gonna start with the most difficult one. And I want you to tell me what you visualize uh, when you hear it. Here's the first one. What do you see? Who sees it? No. No. Oh man, see I gave you the hardest one, but what's that? It's close, gone with the wind. Play it again so they can, they can uh, <laughs> some major fail, I really thought. Anybody see the intro now to Gone with the Wind, can you? I'm the only one that's seen it that many times, okay. I, I saw that movie way too many times. Okay, second one. It was too easy. It was too easy. Third one. What do, you, what do you see in your mind when you hear that bar? Tom Cruise is dancing in his underwear. And that's exactly what you thought we would talk about at church today. Right, if you were around in the 80s, um, and it was controversial, it was kind of crazy, like Tom Cruise, he made his fame, really, um, from this initial scene, uh, dancing in his underwear, right? So you can imagine, like, what makes you so, in Tom Cruise's case, uh, what makes you so excited you would dance in your underwear? In Tom Cruise's case, it was that uh, everybody was gone and he could throw a party at home. Uh, but I'm curious, right? Because we have a passage in scripture, I'm gonna read it to you today, where the king, King David, a guy that was uh, referred to as a man after God's own heart, what we hear in the story, we have a flickering light right on top of you guys over there again, don't we? If you have seizures, move to another part of the room. Let's put that on the list to uh, fix. We're not going with the disco effect purposely. This is not the dance party today. Um, where, where was I? There's a passage where David, this is what it tells us in 2 Samuel, that he goes out and he dances and what it, it calls it is ephod, right? It's his inner garment and it was this big deal. It was a really big deal. So let me tell you the story and let's contemplate what would need to happen for us to dance in response to God's grace and goodness. This is what happens in 2 Samuel chapter six, we're given this story where the Ark of the Covenant, this is this unique place, most of you just know about it, not as much from the Bible as from Indiana Jones movies. But this Ark of the Covenant, this chest that was built as a reminder for the things God had done and a place that the scripture said, this is where God's presence would dwell 
And this ark was really important. In fact, wherever the ark was, God would bring blessings because God's presence was there. And in some ways, it was like training wheels. This is the best way I can try to describe it to you uh, for God's people. He was like, I'm gonna give you something really valuable and I'm gonna give you some rules around it for how to treat it and how to care for it. And I'm gonna see if you can listen, right? Anybody done that with your kids where early on you have to test them before you give them something more significant and you go, hey, I'm gonna give you this and I'm gonna tell you what to do and then I'm gonna follow up to find out if you did it. That's kind of what God was doing with the Ark of the Covenant. And so in 2 Samuel 6, what we find in this uh, is that the Ark is not really where it's supposed to be in this town called Bele, Judah. And, um, and God's people need to move it, but the way God told them to move it wasn't easy. So what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3, is that it tells us that they carried the covenant chest of the true God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. Now, anybody remember in the scriptures what would be significant about them carrying the Ark of the Covenant on a cart? Wrong way to do it, right? It was literally like, God said, this is the way I want you to carry it. I want you to have this many people. I want you to carry it this way. And they were like, yeah, we heard you, God, but that's hard, so how about a wheelbarrow? So they did. They thought, well, we'll just build our own modified ancient Hebrew wheelbarrow and we'll carry it that way. Like God, I know he's specific, but it can't be that big a deal, right? And Uzzah and Ahio directed the new cart with Ahio walking in front of the chest. Again, there were very clear instructions for how to do this, but they thought, well, we don't want to do it God's way. Let's do it our way. And David and all the Israelites were joyous before the eternal, and they were accompanied by wooden lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And it tells us that when they came alongside the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled. And Uzzah put out his hand to steady the covenant chest. Right? It starts to fall out of the wheelbarrow. And the eternal burned with anger against Uzzah, and the true God struck Uzzah dead on the spot for daring to touch the covenant chest. Again, this is one of those that makes Raiders of the Lost Ark such a great movie and that they can make it like this big thing. But ultimately, God was like, I, gave, I told you what to do. You didn't do it. You refused to do it. And Uzzah lost his life because of it. And it tells us that David was angry that the eternal one had broken through to strike Uzzah. So the place was named Perez Uzzah, meaning breach against Uzzah to remember that act. And David was also frightened of the eternal that day. And so what happened was David became so freaked out that the Ark of the Covenant was dangerous to move that he just left it in the place closest to where they could. And what happened when he left it in that place was all the people around the ark where it was left started being blessed. Their farms were really bountiful. Great things were happening for them. And eventually David figured out like, hey, that was uh, a really bad move. And uh, maybe we should go get the ark and bring it to Jerusalem where it belongs and let's get it there and let's try to do it the right way this time. And so probably like a lot of our lives, um, I love the stories of David and his failures because they remind us like we fail too. And probably every one of us has a story of God saying, why don't you do it this way? And we did it our way and it didn't work. And then we didn't get the blessing and things didn't turn out like we thought. And later on, we went back and said, well, our way didn't work. Let's try God's way. Anybody in, your, in that camp, you can go, I've done that before, right? And so ultimately David does that and he goes back and he gets the ark and tells us in 2 Samuel 6, verse 20, 
that on David's return, he wanted to bestow good favor on his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And she begins to tell the story that the king had distinguished himself today in front of his servant maids. Anybody remember what happened in this story? So what we know in this story, pull it down and we'll, we'll come back to it, is the ark has finally arrived in Jerusalem and David is so fired up as he begins to see the ark arrive and he anticipates God's great blessing on Jerusalem that he goes out and does something that you hadn't quite imagined. He literally takes off his clothes and he dances before the Lord in his underwear. Now he had a wife who was the daughter of Saul and uh, one of the many, there's a lot of problems with having many wives. Uh, but one is when you have a wife that doesn't like you. And if, if you have one wife that doesn't like you, your life is really hard. If you have multiple wives that don't like you, it's a difficult existence. And uh, Michal was the daughter of Saul and she resented David. And when David goes out and dances in his underwear before the Lord is an act of worship, she takes offense to it and she comes back and makes a big public scene about it. And so this is what she's doing. And she said, the king has distinguished himself today in front of his servant maids. He revealed quite a lot. Just as the lowest of the low might expose himself. He was, she was saying, it's, it was so undignified. It's not how a king would behave. And it goes on, and David says, it was for the eternal one that I danced. The Lord chose me in place of your father Saul and all his descendants, right? He's smack-talking his wife in front of a big group of people. And he appointed me to rule over Israel, the Eternal's people. And he says this, he says, I will lower myself even further. Maybe I will even shame myself in my own eyes, but in the eyes of those maidservants of whom you speak, I will receive honor. This is the thing, Ecclesia, this is part of what I think is so beautiful about this passage and in general about the way that God set up the world is that there are times that God does something good and what we ought to do, and dancing is a perfect example of it, is stop worrying about ourselves and what we think of ourselves and we ought to relax and dance. What's the slogan or the little catchphrase here? Dance like nobody's watching, right? That was the problem in seventh and eighth and ninth grade, wasn't it? It was like you actually stepped in and you believed everybody in the room was watching you, right? In junior high, that's what you thought. Eventually you grow up and realize that everybody else in that room was just obsessed with thinking that everybody else was watching them, right? And that there was something beautiful about getting to the place where you could relax and you could enjoy and you could laugh and you could dance like nobody's watching. And ultimately what we hear in the scripture, and this is the part of faith that I missed growing up. And so why would you take a sermon and talk about this? Because maybe you grew up in a church like mine and you missed the beauty of the fact that the God who created the world, who gave instructions about how to carry an ark, that he also set up the world in a way that he required us to be people that celebrate. Have you ever thought about it? You look at the Old Testament, you know what God did when he set up the calendar for the Hebrew people? He gave them seven festivals, seven. And he ordered them it is my command that you celebrate. Did anybody grow up in church and think the big thing God wants for us is to celebrate? Anybody grow up in church with that idea? And yet, if you read the Bible, what becomes really clear is God was like, here are seven things and you better do them every year. You better eat a lot. 
You better gather with people who love me, and you ought to laugh and dance and feast, and it ought to be awesome because I'm awesome, right? And you know what God's people did? Is that they not only abided by those seven festivals, you know what they did? They started making up new ones. They did. So when Ruth has this active uh, story of being able to save God's people, you know what they do? They come up with another festival. They call it Purim. Jesus celebrated this festival called Hanukkah. It's not in the Old Testament, but it was a story of when God did something good, and you know what they did? They're like, let's have another party, and let's institute it, and let's do it every year. Now, if I look at the place that we are in life, I can go, if we have a deficit, it's that we don't celebrate enough. So this is the invitation. I want my kids to grow up in a church that feels a little closer to the Old Testament. I want my kids to grow up in a church that they go, hey, when God shows up and does something good, and that's what I'm going to tell you about today. When God shows up and does something good, and all of a sudden, in a really hard year, a church like Ecclesia could respond together in beautiful ways, and amazing things happen. And in the midst of that journey, we get to care for our city, and we get to be the church. And at the end of all of that, we get to come through all of it, and God has blessed us financially to the point that we are given three campuses and that we don't have any debt on any of them, and that we can be forward-thinking in what we do. That ought to be something that we celebrate. So what I want to talk to you about today is why I think we ought to have a dance party and why you ought to block off October 19th, and why your kids ought to come with you. We're saying kids ought to be supervised but that we would love to have kids present. This is the thing about, um, and most of us would go like, are there other things that we could celebrate? There probably probably are. Um, But I would suggest to you that whether it's for your family or for our church family, that one of the best things that can happen is to eliminate debt. Now, this is what most of us know. Um, Debt is a necessary reality often in the world that we live in. So for me, Um, For me to do what I do, uh, one of the best things I could do was go to a school that offered some theological education to me and that prepared me for what I get to do. Um, Now, what I can tell you is the particular school I chose is awesome, and it was awesomely expensive. That for most of the years as I was starting Ecclesia, um, my student loan check every month was more than my mortgage. And that I would go through seasons where I would just think like, what is this about? And every time I would have to look and go, you know what, that experience made me who I am and I don't like the debt. The day we paid it off, finally, we celebrated, right? We threw a party at our house and we had friends over and we celebrated because getting my student loans paid off was one of the biggest things that happened to our family. And it happened just in time for me to start paying for the education of my own children, right? (laughs) It just transferred over quickly. But this is the thing about debt. Uh, debt is backwards focused. It's, it's focused on our past, not on our future. Debt's about the things that we did or that we had to do. And I can look and go, um, the debt that we acquired at 1100 Elder, I'll tell you a little bit about it when we acquired it. Um, we had to do it to pull it off. And it's an amazing thing. It was the right thing to do. Uh, what happens out of that place is really, really beautiful. This is what um, the wise one Solomon says about debt in Proverbs 6. He says, then your words, 
may well be the trap that snares you, and your promise may seal your fate. You can't be sure to whom you hitched your future. So my son, save yourself. Here's what you need to do. Go to that person who became your master with a handshake. Humble yourself and plead your case. He's saying, what's the problem with debt? It's like somebody else controls you. Anybody else get concerned when you hear how much debt our country has to China? You just think like, that doesn't seem like a great idea. It's when you're indebted to somebody, right? They own you. This is what he says. He says, do not sleep. Don't even rest your eyes until you deal with this. What's he saying? Work really hard and pay off your debt. You got in debt. That's part of it. Some of us got into good, good debt for the right reasons, right? So you bought a house. You got an education. Some of you became obsessed with shoes. <laughs> Not the wisest debt. I don't know if you know, but shoes do not appreciate in value. <laughs> they tend to depreciate uh, very rapidly, like as soon as you walk out of the store. But whether you got into good debt or bad debt, I got a courtesy baby laugh. That's a good thing right there. <laughs> That's a really good thing for a pastor. Whether you got into debt for a good reason or a bad reason, what does Proverbs says? Just work hard. Be really disciplined about what you spend and pay it off. Because what happens when you do that? Everything that happens from that day forward is about your future, not about your past, right? It was a good thing that I was paying off my student loan, but I was paying off my past. And what happens when we free ourselves from debt is that every dollar that flows in is about our future. We get to decide what are we going to do with our future. And that's the amazing thing of what I think God set us up for as a church. In Romans 13, this is what Paul says. He's not specifically talking about financial debt, but the same is true. He says, don't owe anyone anything with the exception of love to one another. That is a debt which never ends because the person who loves others has fulfilled the law. He says, this is the debt you want to have is love. And ultimately, I believe that when we're a church, and that's the thing we are going to celebrate, when we're a church that's always forward-looking, we have the capacity to love people in a way that's really hard to fathom. Let me tell you a few of those stories. As we look back over our recent history, as we've gotten to a place financially that we can really do some good, we've been able to, even in the, the chaos of what we were going through, in Harvey, we were able to instantly as a church respond in Puerto Rico. And we deployed over six figures financially to Puerto Rico uh, to help get churches back on the power grid and get solar projects, to do grocery cards in places where people didn't have access to food. Um, we, we got to uh, help rebuild homes all over Puerto Rico, and it's been a gift. This is our sister uh, that Erica Graham told us about, Fati. Fati was a student. Will you pause it? Because I'm not going to do this fast enough. Fatih was a student of Erica's. Erica preached for us about a month ago. And Fatih came in with, uh, to school and was very successful in university. Anybody remember Erica telling us this story? And her family had hit a hard time with medical debt. And they took out a credit card in her name and it forced her out of school. And I can tell you that when uh, Erica called her to tell her, hey, my church wants to pay off all your credit card debt, so that you can go back to school. She thought, who are those people? <laughs> who does that? I've never heard of stories like that. I was in Zambia this summer, 
And uh, we met a group called Kiva Kids in one of the poorest parts of Zambia. They have an arts training every Saturday and they used to feed the kids, but they don't have the money to feed them anymore. It's the best meal they get every year. And because of you, Ecclesia, they're being fed uh, every week when they gather on Saturday. One of the simple things that we get to do. In Argentina, our friend, Pastor Marcelo Robles, uh, is one of our dear friends. His mother is also the wife of a pastor and a widow. Azucena passed away this year. Uh, she suffered for the gospel. Her husband, uh, Miguel, was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And when she went on to be with the Lord, uh, they became in debt because of her uh, funeral. And Ecclesia, you paid for her funeral so that her uh, church and her son and her family uh, wouldn't be indebted because of the funeral. This is Paper Co. And I love what happens downtown. Houstonians from all over the city can come and get a meal, a common meal every day for a dollar and eat with respect. And many of you know Gamma and his family are here and they uh, were blessed with a new car. Uh, we had a number of friends blessed with new cars after Harvey. Uh, more stories than we can tell as we got to hand out cars. What kind of church Ecclesia gets to do this? The kind of church that's focused on the future and not on the past. There may be a day that we have to have some debt again. I pray it doesn't happen. But I got to tell you, to be a part of a church that pools our resources, and that's part of what I want to remind you. On the west side, we still run a bit of a deficit. And many of you are new and you're coming. I just want to tell you that as you give, we give to a church that is future focused. And so when Lisa and I give our tithe every month, I feel so excited to know what the kind of things that it goes for. Let me tell you one more story and we'll take communion. When you're a church that's future focused, you get to do things and not just talk about doing things. There are a lot of churches and a lot of people uh, that claim to be pro-life, but I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, when we um, had an experience earlier this year uh, with a sister who's an Ecclesian, uh, our sister Jenna, boom. Uh, Jenna's a part of Ecclesia, and we found out that in the midst of being a single mom and being pregnant, uh, Jenna had found out that she was diagnosed with cancer. Her cancer uh, was stage one in the midst of her diagnosis, uh, but the only way that she could start treatment was to terminate uh, the baby that she was pregnant with. Jenna wasn't willing to do that, and over the period of time that her pregnancy was gestating and her beautiful little baby, Birdie, was born, um, her cancer went from stage one to stage four. Uh, when, as a church, we became aware of what was happening, she had burned through her 401k and was at a place that she was needing cancer treatment. She's also a veteran, but just wasn't receiving adequate benefits. And Ecclesia, for the last year, we have been paying for Jenna to live in a beautiful high-rise. We're paying her bills, we're paying her rent, um, so that she can get cancer treatment right down the street at St. Joseph's Hospital. Uh, before we take communion, I thought I'd just let you be introduced to our sister Jenna. My name is Jenna. I am a mother of two amazing little girls, and I came to know Ecclesia Church through a former member who has since moved to Austin. The last year has been incredibly tough. Um, I spent most of the last year pregnant and with stage four cancer, and I was in a position to where I went from being on top of the world, having a solid career and a solid life, to not being able to sustain my family. My first step was to approach the VA 
and uh, utilize some of their services for veterans. Unfortunately, I hit a lot of red tape and uh, I was told so many things. I wasn't sick enough, I didn't look sick enough, whatever that means. Um, the wait for certain services was too long. Ecclesia came into the picture after an amazing and random conversation with Claire. She is one of the staff members. She works in the children's area. And I walked in one morning on a Sunday. I think maybe about four weeks after I had my daughter Birdie. And I was just sitting there with tears in my eyes on the verge of a breakdown. And I was holding her. And Claire walked over and um, she just asked if she could hold Birdie and she held her for a little while. My other daughter was coming out of the play area and our conversation led into me just talking for the first time to somebody about the situation I was in. Moving here was a gift in so many ways. I unfortunately was in a wheelchair. I was wheelchair bound. Uh, my abdomen sustained a lot of damage from the ongoing, ongoing chemo and radiation. I had the support of the staff. They would go out of their way to help me out of the vehicle into my apartment and get me situated. And uh, I trusted. I allowed them to help me, which is something that is not easy for me. I'm always so used to helping other people. My gratitude to the church is immense. I will spend the rest of my life recommitting myself to the dedication I have to serving, and it will come in any form that I see. I am so grateful. I want to thank each and every one of you for all of the help that you have extended to my little family. I could not have done any of this without each and every one of you. Your prayers are sincerely felt, and I am so grateful. So, Ecclesia, this is not what, um, that's a gift. This is not what our pastors did. This is not what our staff did. This is what you did. This is what it looks like to be a church that's future thinking. It means when there's a need, that we don't hesitate to meet a real need. And um, I want to be a part of a church like that. I want my ties to go to a church like that. And we think that the debt that we took on, Stephen and I can tell you funny stories about trying to get it. Banks didn't want to loan us money. Ecclesia was like, had the craziest little balance sheet and we didn't have anything going on. We found that building $1,100 owned by a Jewish guy who used to own Shep's Dairy. His wife was kind of a shade tree accountant and she kept looking at our books in order to approve them doing an owner finance loan with us. And she kept saying, your books are really bad. She said, you have never turned a profit. And we said, we understand, Mrs. Goldstein, we are a nonprofit. <laughs> That's kind of the deal. We signed up for a thing that said we would never turn a profit. Because you know what we do? When money comes in, it goes out. Because if people are thirsty across the globe, it flows out to them. And if a sister has cancer and is about to be homeless, then we don't just put her in a halfway house. We put her in a great place to live with two beautiful kids. And because we believe that's what the church is supposed to do. And I got to tell you, Ecclesia, the future is bright. 
We're going to be better at it going forward. We're going to be able to do more of it than we've ever been able to do in the past. And I think it's a gift. So, would you pray with me? Would you contemplate with me what God is saying to you about your future and the ways he's called you to invest what you have? What it looks like to be in a place where you're forward thinking rather than thinking about the past, leveraging yourself for the future. And what it looks like to contribute and to be a part of the healthy life of a church that gets to be forward thinking in what we do. Lord God, we believe that through all of the difficult years that you called us to struggle well as a church, that you have seen, Lord, the heart and the commitment of the people of Ecclesia to be generous, to be faithful, to be hospitable, to care for the least of these. And in the midst of all of that, that you've said, I want to bless this church. And Lord, we celebrate today the fact that we are debt-free. We believe it is totally and completely because you have been good to us and you have seen the faithfulness of your people and we are grateful. And so today, God, we ask that you would continue to bless the families and the people in our congregation. We pray you would bless the church, that we would be generous and faithful and good stewards with what you have given us. We thank you today for this bread. We believe it's a physical reminder that you love us, that you care for us, and that that love ought to be shared. That you didn't just give it to us so that we could bask in it ourselves, but that as we felt loved by you, as we experienced your grace, that we could tell the world about it. Lord, we thank you for this cup, for this wine and juice that says to us that forgiveness is real. That for even those places that we've made significant mistakes, that we bought a lot of shoes and we've wasted money in the wrong places at the wrong times. Lord, you forgive us. You give us new opportunities. We get to move forward. And we pray, Lord, just like your people, just like King David, that when we make a mistake, we didn't do it your way, that we could experience your love and grace and forgiveness and we wake up a new day and we're reminded, I'm gonna try God's way today. My way didn't work so well. And so Lord, we come to this table as a people saying we want to follow your path and we're grateful that when we fail in it, that you don't hold it against us, that you forgive us. We pray all of this together and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.